Exodus chapter 22. Lord, we thank you so much for your blessing us with a worship team that uh, prepares our hearts. Lord, we want our hearts and our minds to be fully fixed on your son, Jesus. And so, Father, um, as we are focusing in on him, we, we're going to read your word and we're going to uh, see some things that maybe we understand and some things that we don't. We, we pray as the New Testament church, Lord, you've poured out your Holy Spirit to give us understanding in things that are otherworldly, that are holy, that are righteous. And so we ask that you would fill us with your spirit to receive what you have for us this morning. We ask it with hope and with expectancy. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Exodus chapter 22, just a chapter after they've approached Mount Sinai, God has given the top ten commandments... And now he's going to expound upon them through the law of Moses. So there's the law of God, which was spoken audibly. And then there's the law of Moses that kind of expounds upon or gives application to the law of God. And so with that being said, I want you to remember that the first portion of the law of God is in priority on purpose. That we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that he deserves our wholehearted surrender and devotion. And then as a result of that, he develops our relationships with one another in light of who he is. It teaches us how to treat one another based on how he's first treated us in Christ. And so the message today is, is a continuation of what he's already been giving them in the law on Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai, the word Sinai actually means thorn. And if you've ever experienced thorns, they're not very enjoyable. And maybe some of you are different than me. Maybe you're more holy. But I, when I read through the law, it can feel like a thorn to me. It pokes me in ways that I don't enjoy, as if anybody likes to be poked. It, it, it uh, provokes me. It exposes my heart for what it truly is. And that's what the law is meant to do. It's meant to, to show us that we are unholy, that we are unrighteous, but that Jesus Christ is perfectly holy and that he's perfectly righteous. And so as we have our hearts exposed, I want you to remember that this is all meant to lead us to the one who is meant to save us from the consequences of our sin. And so in Exodus chapter 22 in verse 1, it says, if a man steals, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So if you steal something, and in this case it's livestock, you have to count the cost. Is it worth the consequence? Is the time worth the crime? And I would say to you that it's way cheaper to buy one ox than to provide five for the one you've stolen and then still not have one. That's what the law says. Uh, if the thief is found breaking in and he's struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. So if a thief breaks in and, and they're struck, there's self-defense involved, uh, then there's no consequences to those who were defending their own property. And yet, verse 3 says, but if it was done in daylight then there's consequences. If you saw what was going on, if the sun has risen on the thief, 
then there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. And if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. And so if you remember last week, there was this idea of servitude or slavery. But if you break the law and you cannot make up for what you've stolen, then you can actually, in order to pay off your debt, you can be sold into servitude to pay off your debt. And so there's this way to redeem the situation and to make it right. And so they would become slaves for a time in order to pay off their debt. Now, if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, then he shall restore double. So if he kills it and sells it or gets rid of the evidence, maybe he steals something, puts it on Facebook Marketplace and immediately sells it, then they have to return, if they're caught, they have to return fourfold or fivefold. But in the case that they still have it in their hand when they're caught stealing, then there's actually a little bit of mercy involved. And you just have to restore what you stole and then one more instead of four or fivefold. So there's grace even in the law. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed, and lets loose his animal, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. So maybe you're a farmer, and you have animals that graze and eat, and your fence is broken down, it's in ill repair, and it breaks into another man's field, and it starts to eat, and it does this for a certain amount of time, and it's going to eat a lot. I don't know if you guys know, but a cow, and I don't remember how many pounds it was. A few years back, somebody told me how many pounds of food that a, a cow eats in one day. And it's astronomical. So if you have a field full of cattle that break into another man's field and they eat for one day, that's quite the expense. And so he says here, if that happens, then, then you need to make full restitution, not just from any source, but from the best from the best of your fields, from the best of your vineyards. And so you're to restore better than perhaps even they took from you. Now, or you took from them. But here in verse 6, we see a rule concerning arson. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, then he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. Now, Maybe some of us wouldn't go out and purposely set someone's field on fire. But you could be like me on a windy day and decide, you know, I think I need to burn my leaves today. Now, none of you have done this recently, but you start burning your leaves and you have no plans for evil. But maybe an ember goes over to your neighbor's lot and catches it on fire. That's a problem. And you can't just say, well, I didn't know. We have to be responsible for what we do. Now, maybe the responsible thing is to wait until a dry day when it's not windy. I'm not like that. I'm impatient. So maybe you're the impatient person who didn't wait. And he says there, the field is consumed, and he who kindled the fire shall surely make up for what he burned. So there's a loss, and you need to make do. You need to pay them back in some form or fashion. And so all of this is really about loving our neighbor. 
all of this is about making responsible choices, considering the consequences and realizing that whether or not you think about it, your actions affect others. We live in a society, we live in a Christian even society, that Christians themselves go, what does it matter what I do? My choice only affects me. It's not true. Everything you do affects those who are close to you, whether you think about them or not. And so the law causes us to go, you know, maybe I should wait to burn my leaves because I don't have the money to pay for that house that burned down. I don't have money to pay for the crop that got burned. And so he goes on to say, if a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, in other words, hey, I've got this stuff and I need you to keep it while I'm gone until I return for safekeeping. And while it's with that man, it's stolen out of the man's house to whom it was entrusted. If the thief is found, then that thief, just like any other uh, stealing, has to restore double. But if the thief is not found, but the items are still gone, then the master of the house to whom it was entrusted shall be brought to the judges to see whether he was actually the thief. Right? Right? Have you ever trusted someone and you found out that you shouldn't have? He says, in this case, uh, both parties need to go before the judge, and basically they get a fair trial to see whether this man who was trusted has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, clothing or any kind of lost item which another claims to be his the cause of both parties shall come before the judges and remember what we're reading are essentially the law books of their days this is what god gave to judges to make wise decisions concerning civil matters there wasn't some sort of law book that the nation itself had written god gave them their laws and then he said judges Here's your standard. You don't get to come up with your own standard. You don't get to vote it in. There's no voting in the law of God. These are the laws. Keep them. And when people don't keep them, I want you to judge based on what this says. This is the standard. And whoever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, maybe he's going away for a long time, and he needs someone else to be a steward over those animals. And under his keeping, the animal dies or is hurt or driven away. No one sees the, the action happen. Then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods. So you might say, well, what does that matter? Well, uh, your word is supposed to mean something. And in James James writes, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Don't swear by the temple, don't swear by the Bible, but your word should be able to be trusted. And so you are to look in in the other person's eye and say, I did not steal from you. And in those days, it was less common for people to be able to keep a straight face when they were lying. And there comes a time where we can no longer blush when we sin or when we Uh, testify falsely but he's saying there you need to look the man in the eye you need to say I didn't take it and 
he needs to look in your eye and say, I didn't take it. And then the owner of it shall accept that. We need to become a people who when we say something, it's not, it's not laced with sarcasm. It's not laced with uh, jest or irony. We just need to become people who what we say is what we actually mean. And then it's a lot less confusing. We don't have to try to read between the lines. And so he says, then accept that and he shall make it good. But if in fact it is stolen from him, then he shall make restitution to the owner of it. In other words, if you give property to somebody, while they have it, it's stolen, and they know it was stolen, then they they need to make it right. They didn't keep it safe for you. It's their responsibility. And so if someone gives something to you and says, will you keep this safe for me? And you think, "Eh, it's pretty likely it's going to get stolen here. I don't know who's coming in and out. Then don't keep it for them. That doesn't make sense. Um, But if in fact it is stolen from him, He shall make restitution to the owner of it. But if it is torn to pieces, and in the case of livestock, by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make it good what was torn. In other words, if the animal was torn while in his field, he can't do anything about that, then he doesn't have to make it right. But if a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it becomes injured or dies, then the owner of it not being with it he shall surely make it good. But if its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. So, imagine this. You let someone borrow your chainsaw. And you're not with them when they're using it, but it breaks. Well, then they need to make sure that you have either a fixed chainsaw or a new chainsaw because it was broken while it was under your care and you borrowed it with the intent of giving it back. But maybe... They were there while you were doing something stupid with their chainsaw. And while you were using it, they didn't say, hey, that's not a good idea. It's not supposed to work that way. And it breaks. Then if you tell them, then obviously it's on them. But if you were with it and it breaks or it dies, the animal, while you're there, it's technically under your care. It's really your responsibility, not theirs. And that might seem like a bunch of minutia of details, but... When it comes to civil disputes, a lot of the time, it's always whose responsibility is it? And God makes it clear whose responsibility is based on the circumstance. Now, if it was hired, in other words, you rented it, it came for its hire. And so if you rented it and it breaks, then it's on the person that owns it. You paid to borrow it. It's a different circumstance. But what I want to tell you is that I don't borrow many tools anymore. Because number one, I break them. And number two, I lose them. And number three, it's cost me in the past. I borrowed a log splitter one time that I actually grew up using with my dad. Needed to split some wood. It's going to help a guy out. I had to put it on a trailer. should have been my first note that I probably shouldn't borrow it. it. It wouldn't roll well. And so I put it on a trailer and I hauled it all the way to Cape Girardeau. And when we got there... I tried to start it. Now, my dad owned it, and then he sold it to someone else. That's the only reason I tried to borrow it in the first place. But the guy that bought it from him did not take good care of it. I didn't know that. So I pull up. We're going to split some wood, and I start to try to start it. And if you've ever tried to start something that's not yours, everything's it's a different beast. You don't know it. So I'm pulling the rope. Pulling the rope. You can see where this is going. It 
it's not starting. I'm pulling the rope. I'm choking it. I'm doing all the, you know, the priming it, and it will not start. Well, what happens is that eventually the plastic cover and the spring-loaded pull rope, and then the rope is frayed. Next thing you know, it will not start. I pulled it to Cape. We didn't split any wood. It would have been cheaper to rent one. And in the meantime, I have to restore it to the condition it was in, which was not great, but I still have to fix it. All that to say, I could have saved a lot of time and effort if I would have just spent the 150 bucks and rented one for a day, because it would have been cheaper than borrowing it. But I will tell you that the law says, even though it was a hunk of junk when I borrowed it, I need to make it right. And so I didn't just fix it. I fixed it so it would work. I was a blessing to the person that let me borrow it. And I bet if I asked him to borrow something again, he would definitely let me. (laughs) Because then I could fix his stuff. Um, So it's all about responsibility. And if there's anything we could use more of in our society, it's people just taking responsibility. Living righteously doesn't mean just going to church. It means dealing with our relationships in a way that glorifies God and blesses those who don't many times know the Lord. So, in verse 16, it says, If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed, and he lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. Now, I think that this particular verse would change our world as we know it. I think, number one, there would be more married people. Less and less people are willing to get married these days. And I think, number two, I think people would think twice before jumping into any relationship the way that our society does anymore. And by the way, before you start pointing fingers at the world and going the way that our society is, in the church right now, Most people think that it's totally fine to live with or to start having physical relationships with their significant other or boyfriend or girlfriend or ad nauseum. The reason they think that is because they don't read the Bible, and I'm talking about Christians. We need to be those that uphold the standard. God's standard is clear here, don't you think? It says there, if a man entices a virgin, in other words, he's trying to lure her in. By the way, parents of daughters, men do this, in case you didn't know. And they're trying to get what they want, but they don't have anything to give. They're just trying to get what they want. But it says here, who is not betrothed, and he lies with her physically, then he shall surely pay the dowry to her dad to marry her and then marry her to be responsible for his actions Jesus said what God has put together let not man separate and for whatever reason we think that when we adjoin ourselves to someone else physically it doesn't mean anything but when we're joined together physically there's something spiritual that happens and you know that because when the breakup happens it's way worse when there's been physical intimacy. And so God says, don't do it. And he does, then he says, it's not before I do. It is before I do. But now that you have, you, you have done. It's no longer I do, it's I did. In the eyes of the Lord, you've joined yourselves. So all that to say, he needs to pay the dowry 
and then marry the girl. But the dad's not always happy about this. Verse 17, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, then the man shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So now he has to pay the dowry and he doesn't get to marry her. So, pretty clear. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Let's stop there. What's a sorceress? A sorceress is someone who does divination, magic, and all kinds of other things. Uh, We might call them alchemists. You've heard these terms if you've been into any sort of uh, comic books. They talk about alchemy and mixing chemicals together. And so it's not just sorcery or magic as we would think it. Many times there's chemicals involved. And guess what? In the New Testament, the same word is pharmakia for sorcery. And what it means is drugs. Drugs. Anyone who would mix together and cut chemicals and make all these things that we use to create alternate realities for ourselves. He says anyone who would manufacture and then sell these things as a trade in the land of Israel, don't let them live. Corporal punishment. Deal with them with death. Put them to death. Why? Because in the nation of Israel, in the land of Canaan, as they're going into this new land, this was common. And it was how they worshipped their gods. They would get their minds into alternate states, and then in these frenzies, they would commit all kinds of otherworldly things and physical relationships and, and orgies and drunkenness and all the like. And that's how they would worship their gods. He says, anyone who is even a source of these kind of chemicals or this magic or incantations, he says, don't play around with it. Kill it at the source. That's what God's word says. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Then he goes on and says, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. I don't think I need to draw a picture for you. And if you think that kind of thing doesn't happen now, you're naive. It's happening. And so with that in mind, he says, he who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. And so all these, keep in mind the context The children of Israel have known the land of Egypt, and that was a land of idols. But now they're going into a land, and they're going to possess it, and they're going to dispossess those who live there, and they're not supposed to worship idols. Why does he keep saying this? Don't worship idols. Don't make idols. Don't don't serve any other god. Because they're going into a land that's filled with other gods. And they're going to be tempted, whether they mean to or not, to appease those gods, because the idea was that gods were national and gods were territorial and so as you go into this land you're going to be tempted to go you know our crops aren't growing very well maybe we need to sacrifice to the gods of this land but we know from the psalms and from the bible that the the earth is the lord's all of it and the fullness thereof and so it's all his land And he's going to promise them in the very next chapter, if you will serve and worship me only, then I'll take care of all the other needs. I'll take care of your need for food and sustenance and a place to live. I'll provide for you. You don't need to serve any other gods for this to take place. And so, he says, whoever lies... I'm not going to go over that one again. 
makes me sick to even read it. Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. And if you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. So, if when you go into the land, and there are widows among you, those that don't have a husband or a wife, and you afflict them, or you mistreat them, I'm going to take it personally. Now, do you think any of the people of Israel are, are thinking, hey, as we go into the land, let's afflict the widow and the orphan. Let's make sure that they, you know, that they feel cursed. We don't want them here anyway. No, I don't think so. But I think as their lives become more fruitful, and as their crops become more plentiful, and as they become more sophisticated in their, in their lives and in their families, what I think they're going to have trouble with is attending to things that are important to them, but forgetting the widow and the orphan. And in their neglect of the widow of the or- and the orphan, they're going to afflict them. They're going to mistreat them, not because they're trying to, but because they're not paying attention to the fact that what James says is that true and undefiled, pure religion, pure religion in the sight of God the Father is this, that we serve widows and orphans in their time of need. By the way, when people are widows, when people are orphans, they don't put up a sign and go, hey, I need help. I don't have what I need. I'm lonely. They don't advertise it because they feel widowed and orphaned as it is. We have to be those who are looking for such people. Because guess what? If God takes it personal, when they feel lonely, or abused or neglected. So should we. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as his dear children. Be imitators, not just of his holiness, but of his care and his mercy and his grace and compassion on those that fall through the cracks of our society. Yes, we have programs to deal with those things. But we have programs nationally to deal with those things because you and I, we neglect them. As a nation, we have programs that cause there a need to be taxed highly. But you know whose fault it is that we have national programs that are expensive, that we have to pay for by our taxes? It's the Christian's fault. Because God has told us to be those who are ministers of mercy and ambassadors of the kingdom. And by and large, we neglect it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take advantage of it once in a while. But it should be our practice to do such things. That's the kingdom of God. Look what Jesus did. He was attracted to people who could not pay him back for what he did to them. He was attracted to it. And guess what? He didn't have anything. He had nothing. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Every meal that he partook of was a gift. And yet, when they had it in their power to meet a practical need, he would do it. Knowing that if he did that, God would take care of his needs. And I am one to testify that every time I've taken a step of faith to minister to the widow and orphan, God's restored to me four or five fold. I cannot 
the math doesn't make sense economically. And I would encourage you, in this time of thanksgiving, give thanks with your words, but give thanks to God by giving to people that can't pay you back. You're going to have such joy. The blessing outweighs the consequence. Anyway, I'll get off my hobby horse. I'm just very moved by this passage. Don't mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers. Do you remember what it was like to be a stranger from God? Maybe sometimes you still feel it once in a while. Do you remember what it was like to be a stranger from God, not knowing that he had hope offered to you? Treat those who feel like strangers to God as though the heart of the Father was just beaming up and boiling over through you. He says, Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. He says, lend to those who are poor, but don't charge interest. The New Testament actually says, if if someone has need and you have the power to lend it to them, lend it to them without expecting any return. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, then return it to him before the sun goes down, even when he still owes you, For that is his only covering, it is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me in his affliction, I will hear, for I am gracious. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So, verse 27, he's saying, it's it's his only covering. So if you lend to somebody, and somebody guarantees they'll pay you back, and they don't have a house to say, "If, if I default on this, you can have my house, but they say... If I default on this, this is all I've got. Then when they lay their head down at night, make sure they're still warm. You know where they live. You can get their garment the next day. You have a guarantee that they're going to pay you back. But make sure they're warm at night so they don't cry out to the Lord, and then the Lord have to deal with you. Verse 28, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not revile God, or curse a ruler of your people. Now, for them, it would be the king. And he doesn't give a disclaimer based on whether the ruler is someone that they like. You shall not revile God, and in doing so, curse a ruler of your people. And so, the idea is here that if you have a ruler over your people, maybe some of you have somebody in mind that you absolutely cannot stand, drives you nuts, he's the most wicked guy, he's the antichrist, whatever. But the word here says, don't curse a ruler of your people. Don't speak unwell of him. And the New Testament says, bless and do not curse. And so we see this in King David. King David had a ruler of his people, King Saul, who was the king before him, that was physically trying to throw spears at him and kill him. By the way, David was anointed king many years before he ever sat on the throne of Israel. And he submitted himself to a king that he was told had had the kingdom taken from his hand. He was no longer qualified to sit on the throne of God. And yet, David, knowing that Saul was still king and was still sitting on the throne, still had the leadership over the people, submitted to God and said, when it's my time to rule, God's going to make it happen. And so, in the meantime, God was with him, and he was valiant and victorious in battle. It was evident to Saul that David had God's favor. And yet, when Saul was sad or 
frustrated or tormented by his evil thoughts, David would go into his chamber and he would play music on a guitar or a sitar or whatever it was he played. He would play music to soothe Saul's soul. That was his job. And when Saul got so mad at David because he knew that the kingdom was going to be given to David, he was envious and jealous, and his heart turned wicked towards David, and he took a spear and he threw it at him to kill him. Have you ever had somebody hate you so much that they physically threw a spear at you? Maybe not. Maybe they've thrown daggers. Maybe they've tried to assault your character. But David, in return, ran. He fled. And then mighty men surrounded him. And God took care of him as he was fleeing Saul. Saul began to take all of the armies. Instead of fighting the armies of the Lord, he started to try to triumph over David by killing him so that he wouldn't lose his position as king. And as he was chasing him, one day, David found himself in a cave called Adullam. And in that cave, he was hiding from Saul so Saul wouldn't kill him. Doesn't seem very victorious or valiant, does it? But he said, I'm not going to lay my hand against the, the ruler over my people. This is who God put in charge, whether I agree with him or not. And when that happened, it just so happened Saul, in chasing him, came into the cave that David and his men were in. Apparently it was a large cave. And Saul came in there to relieve himself. It was the 7-Eleven along the highway. He needed to use the restroom. And when he got in there, he was vulnerable, right? We're vulnerable when we're using the restroom. And as he was relieving himself, all of his men were like, David, kill him. Here he is. Here's your chance. This is God giving you the throne. And David said, I will not. He said this, I will not curse a ruler of my people. I I will not raise my hand against him. And so what he did was he cut the garment that Saul was wearing. He was that close, folks. He had it in his hand to kill Saul, who was trying to kill him. He had the advantage, and he did not take it. And when Saul relieved himself and he went out, guess what he did? David said, hey, Saul, don't you see that today the Lord has delivered you by my hand? That I've not taken your life even though you're trying to kill me? What have I done against you that you're trying to kill me? He showed him mercy. He didn't give him what he deserved. And in doing so, Saul said, you're more holy than I am. You're more righteous. You're right. You've dealt with me righteously. Now, did Saul stop trying to kill him? No. He didn't. He didn't. The way that he treated Saul, Saul had the opportunity to repent. He experienced the grace of God in the man that eventually through his line would come Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in my fleshly heart, I go, yeah, they did. They knew they were killing Jesus. David there saying, Father, forgive Saul. He doesn't know what he's doing. Saul knew what he was doing yet we see the grace of God. And so all of that to say, here in the law, we see the heart of God in dealing righteously. So, verse 29, and what I would say is that 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, pray for all men. 
Paul said, I desire that we pray for all men, making supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and even giving of thanks be made for all men, even if he is currently the president and you cannot stand him. When was the last time you prayed for him? The only way that God's going to change his heart is if the Lord changes his heart. You complaining doesn't change the situation. As a matter of fact, it makes everybody else as angry as you are. Thanks for that. We need more angry people. Right? Christians, stop complaining. Start giving thanks and start praying as if God can change his heart. Because Proverbs says that the, the heart of the king is like rivers channeled through the hand of God. He's the only one who can make things better. If the Tea Party can't, I haven't even heard anything about the Tea Party in a while. Our politics can't change it. Jesus is the only one that can. Ask him to. We have not because we asked not. And, and, and so, anyway, obviously I'm, I'm a little worked up about it, but he says, praying for all men, not giving disclaimers, he says, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. If you're not going to pray for them because you you're struggling to love your enemies, pray for them because you love your own family. Pray for the king like it affects you, because it does. He says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, including that guy is. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So if he's the only mediator between God and men, then you need to pray for him like he's a lost guy, or a lost woman, or a lost senator, or a lost whatever, boss maybe. Somebody that you cannot stand. Pray for them. God can move mountains. People are smaller than mountains. And so, you shall not delay or offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. So these offerings are things that we offer up to the Lord. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce. So many of us are farmers and many of us are not. Whatever God provides for you from the work of your labors, he says, you shall not delay. Offer the first of your produce and your juices and your firstborn of your children. You shall offer them to God. And that's why when we have children, we dedicate them to the Lord. That's why we come before the congregation and say, this child has been given to me by God and I'm giving him back to God. Now, we're not offering up a, as a burnt sacrifice. We're just saying, as much as depends upon me, I'm giving my children to you, Lord, because ultimately, you made them for your purposes, not mine. He says, likewise, you shall do with your animals. And, and your animals, the first one that comes forth from the womb, it's the Lord's. Give it to him. And then he says, um, you shall be holy men to me, you shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. And so now he's going to talk about holiness to the Lord. And I have there for you that these are laws concerning justice, 
They're laws concerning our holiness before the sight of God. In other words, being different. As Christians, do you know we're meant to be different? We should reflect our, the heart of God. We should live in a way that, that reflects God and, and maybe even rubs people the wrong way, but for the right reasons. He says in chapter 23, verse 1, You shall not circulate a false report. In other words, don't spread false rumors. Don't, don't circulate something unless you know it's true, but definitely don't circulate a false report. Don't put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Many times when the crowd starts yelling something, we assume it's true, and then we go in with them, not realizing that we're promoting wickedness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside uh, after many to pervert justice. Do you know what it means to pervert something? It means to twist it, to pervert justice, to, to make it not justice, um, to make it seem like justice, uh, to distort it. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. You can think about it, maybe someone who is of means and someone who is poor, they go to court with one another. And the poor man has no means to defend himself, and so many times he'll have to, uh, he'll have to be there and, and uh, represent himself and, himself, and yet someone who has money could get a high-class lawyer and start you know, greasing the palms of the people that can testify on his behalf. People are tempted to do that because if someone has money, many times they, they, they want to make them happy so that maybe they can get some of it. That's why in the, in the church it's important that one of the requirements to be a leader is they're not greedy for filthy lucre, if that makes sense. And so he says, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, just anybody's enemy, uh, ox or donkey. But if you see their ox or donkey going astray, do something crazy. Bring it back to him, even though you're, he's your enemy. He says, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, not, your, not just your enemy, but someone who hates you, and it's lying under a burden, and you would refrain from helping it because you don't like him, you shall surely help him with it. Now, this exposes your heart, it should, because the law is meant to show you that apart from Jesus, we can do no good thing. But he says, treat your enemies as if you love them, because your Father in heaven loves them, is what he's saying. He says, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute, and keep yourself far from a false matter. Don't kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Have you ever been tempted by a bribe? Don't raise your hand. That's embarrassing. But have you ever been offered a bribe? It's, well, it's not a bribe. I just want to do something nice for you. And you just so happen to be involved in this case or this dispute that I'm involved in. They're trying to win your favor. By greasing your palm. Well, it's important that we don't take a bribe because we don't want to pervert justice. But it's also important because when you do take a bribe, bribes will actually blind the recipient of the bribe. Do you 
know that? It actually takes away spiritual discernment from the one who would take a bribe. And it perverts the words of the righteous. So there are people among us that are, are, they are actually righteous. And if you take a bribe and then you testify against them, you're actually slandering their character and no one's going to trust them anymore. And they should. So you start to blur the lines between good and evil. And in so doing, you confuse your entire community. And the next thing you know, you're in a nation that calls evil good and good evil. And Jesus says, woe unto those who call good evil and evil good and pervert justice. And so we can be those who make that distinction by not taking the bribe, but instead testifying true, even when it's not the popular opinion, or even when our opinion could get us into trouble. So he says, keep yourself from a false matter. Don't take bribes. Verse 9, also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then we end on the Sabbath. Verse 10, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. So, maybe you've been like this before. You're, maybe you're a farmer, maybe you know one. Have you ever wondered why the agribusiness network has to have so many supplements that they truck out to your land to make it full of nutrients again. We supplement it. We, we add lime. And sometimes we live in Iron County. Got to get the rocks out. We got to do all these things. But the, there's industries that have built up on all these chemicals. You have to have chemicals to kill the bad stuff. You have to have chemicals to make the soil good for the good stuff. And in the meantime, uh, we have all these uh, chemistry products to add as supplements to our land. And what God says is that when you go into this land, they're going to the land of Canaan, which is it's prosperous, it's, it's fruitful, it's lush. He says, here's what you are to do. The thing I told you to do for yourselves to make sure that you're rested and refreshed, I want you to do for the land. Plow up the ground and plant it for six years and harvest. And on the seventh year, don't touch it. Don't touch it. On the seventh year, don't plow it up, but just leave it. Don't weed it. Don't plow it. Don't sow. Don't reap. And you're going to give the land rest. And when you give the land rest, then you plow it up the year after that, you're going to have proper harvest again. What's interesting about that is that's also a spiritual truth because he says there, well, verse 11, he says, first, when you do this on the seventh year, don't harvest anything. And you'll leave food, essentially, for those who are poor and don't have their own fields. And then you'll still have enough for the beasts to eat from. But then in verse 12, he says, Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, and your ox and your donkey may rest. So he says, the same thing you did for your land, do it for you. Because what's good for the land is also good for you physically. He says, six days do all your work. He's already said that before almost like he's repeating it because he knows they won't listen. And on the seventh day, you shall rest. He says, when you rest, 
Notice also your ox and your donkey will rest. And the son of your female servant, so your servants will rest, and your stranger will be refreshed. All of those that are not out there laboring. So many times, we try to take a break, but the people that work under us don't take a break. And then guess what happens? When you're on your rest day, you don't get to rest because your phone's blowing up. You know? And there is one man that I know of in the Old Testament who followed these patterns, and when they rose up, his employees all loved him, and it was a man by the name of Boaz. He was a ruler in his day, even though he was really just a servant. Hard-working guy. And it says there in Ruth that when Boaz walked out to his fields in the day, his employees, his servants, and all of those who gleaned from his fields would say, Blessings to you, Boaz. Now, how many uh, managers and employers do you know that when their people walk into their jobs, they just go... You're just such a blessed guy. I love working for you. Yeah, me neither. I don't know that I ever had one that I said that to. So there's blessings attached to simply obeying. If you take a rest and if you give your land the rest, then all of us will be refreshed. And then as a result of that, we'll be blessed. I didn't mean to do that. That's like a dad joke, pastor reference, rhyming thing. So... He says, six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. And in all that I have said, verse 13, to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. So there's a lot there, but I want to, there's two things. Number one, notice there he says, you shall not even let the, the names of these foreign gods come across your lips. These idols, these false gods. Don't even mention their names from your lips. Your lips are to be holy. They're meant to speak my words and my name. But also what's interesting is that in the nation of Israel to this day, they don't speak the name of God. We have it in ours, Yahweh and Jehovah. But that's really just us trying to piece it together and make sense of only the consonant sounds they left because when they would write the name of God, they would leave the vowels out because it was too holy to be written, too holy to be spoken. And yet what's interesting about that is that we are to speak the name of Jesus everywhere we go. He says, if you're going to not mention names, don't mention the names of the false gods. But that's for another time. He says, in all that I've said to you, be circumspect. And I had to look it up because I went to Farmington High School. I didn't go to A.V., but in Ephesians chapter 5, we get a little context about what that word means. Ephesians 5. Because the Sabbath is not just about not working. The Bible and Christianity are not about what Christians are to not do. It's about what we are to do. He says, walk circumspectly with me in the land. So in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15... Paul picks up on this same thought, and he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Well, how can I redeem the time? How can I buy back the time if I don't take any time? 
He says, don't be unwise, but instead seek understanding. And then you will know what the will of the Lord is. He says, in doing this, seeking understanding, and uh, uh, not Jesus, but Solomon says in Proverbs, he says, seek the Lord, seek wisdom. And in doing this, you'll find life. He says, don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And speak to one another, one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, how can I speak to them in those things unless I know them? And I've taken the time to ingest them. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So take the time on the Sabbath, not just to be refreshed, but to ask the Lord to refresh you and then fill yourself with refreshing things. The word of the Lord, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord and also giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and then submitting to one another in the fear of God. How do I walk circumspectly? Take time to rest. Take time to reflect and take time to count your blessings. And I don't know, maybe you're better than I am. Maybe you're more holy than but it's hard for me to count my blessings when I'm in the middle of my work. But to take that day and to rest and reflect on God's faithfulness to me, to reflect on his forgiveness of my sin, to reflect and realize that I have sin I still need to deal with, and then to walk out of those times of reflection, counting my blessings with joy, because I, I get to remember again all of the things that I've committed against God and he's not accounted them against me, because I've come to him because of his son. And so, Father, you know, uh, thank you for the law of God that pricks our hearts and exposes our sin. Thank you for time to sit in your presence and reflect upon your goodness, your graciousness, your desire for all men to be saved, your instruction on how to reach out to them, I think a lot of the time we we don't share our faith with people because we don't know how to do it practically. And today we've had exposed and instructed to us many ways that without saying a word, we can evangelize by the way that we live and by the way that we treat our neighbor in love. And so Holy Spirit, would you please fill us today? And would you prick our hearts and expose the, the areas that even this week we might be able to serve you in a righteous way and and then even reveal your son Jesus through the way that we treat our neighbors by the way we treat our families we're going to see them all this week Lord Jesus would you help us to live righteously with them whether we consider them enemies whether they don't like us or not help us to be your ambassadors as we go it's Thanksgiving Lord we should be the first with those that uh, among our community, among our families, to be able to express thankfulness. And not just thankfulness, but we know who to thank. Thank you for all good gifts that come down from you, our Father of light. We pray that you would help us to apply this word, help us to walk uprightly, and help us to glorify your Son, Jesus, as we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
give life.